Meanwhile, I'm looking for a great warrior. Oh. <laughs> Wars not make one great. <laughs> wow, this place is great. Yeah. If you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. Hello and welcome back to the spooky Hall of Greatness. I'm, I'm terribly frightened at this moment. <laughs> I know you should be. I feel uh, like I, a, a a horde of zombies are dancing towards me in some way. Uh, I that's am. How, that's how frightened I am. <laughs> I am uh, Candy Andy Wilson uh, here at your your <laughs> Halloween Hall of Greatness, and uh, I'm now maybe JB. I don't know if. I can partake in this nickname game. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, that that works. Uh, if you if you come up with a better monster name, let me know. But uh, uh, <laughs> that's that's pretty good. Um, but uh, this this week on the Hall of Greatness, we are going to discuss one of the greatest albums of all time, uh, and because it is somewhat seasonally appropriate, uh, we are talking about Michael Jackson's Thriller. And the which was almost called Michael Jackson's Starlight. Thankfully, it's not right. Thank or you, else... Rod Tarton, for that. Right. Or, because otherwise, there would be no reason for us to be talking about it <laughs> no. at Halloween, no, or for there to have ever been uh, anything, you know, especially spooky about that That's album. Right. Uh, it just would have been a great album. So, so there, it, and there it we did go. lend but, to my favorite uh, Guinness Book of World Records, though, where something like fourteen thousand people in Mexico City did the the Thriller zombie dance routine in like oh nine. Do you remember that? I don't. That was the funniest things I ever remember. Is I do that the the whole audience was was doing Thriller like like uh, yeah all around the world like people in a prison in the Philippines. And yeah. we're going to get together and do the Thriller dance. That would not have worked if okay. it was the Starlight dance, just <laughs> just so everyone knows. Unless, Probably <laughs> not. Unless Andy, Andy so, Wilson was uh, in charge of it. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, you know, as as a prison warden, I would have mandated that all prisoners <laughs> do the Starlight dance from Michael Jackson. 1983 oh, seminal man, album Starlight. All right, so how, what do you want to talk about with this this I mean, you and I both grew up with this album. It's it's one of our favorite albums, top top 3, right. I think for both of us if 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 not higher. Um what how, what do you want to talk? I mean, there's so much we can unpack with this. Uh, tell me tell me about this album in in your mind and what you want to talk about. With it. Like, I think we need to talk about what it meant culturally, but then we should also talk about what okay. it means a little bit personally. Like, th- this is huge. And the the basic idea that Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones, who he worked with previously on Off the Wall, and they got together and they said, let's do an album that all of the songs could be singles. Right. And let, let's do that. Because Off the Wall had been hugely popular and set a record at the time for having four top 10 singles right and no album had ever done that uh and and they still couldn't break into white radio and that's and and that was the michael jackson thing he wanted to write the what was it tchaikovsky like a a, the nutcracker suite he wanted everything to be just larger than life and um better in every way so right 
So, so they said, let's do this album. And they, they put this together. Uh, Jackson and Quincy Jones wrote some songs. They brought in uh, a ringer uh, who you already mentioned, Rod Temperton, who had also previously written a lot of Jackson's hits on Off the Wall. And this was uh, an, an arduous process. How many different demos and songs did they listen to to get this down to the nine? I, I think they spent around four months and, and anywhere from six to 800. I've read 700. I know you mentioned 600. Um, but, but to narrow that many down to nine is, is crazy. But, but I think especially to do what they wanted to do, which was balance this, this, like you said, this new wave of R and B pop disco. I mean, they even wanted to, to do rock and, and ballads. I mean, it was an album that, they really wanted to transcend musical labels, which which I think was a tough task back then. Right. And I you know, you could argue that at that moment, Michael Jackson reinvented pop music for the nineteen eighties and made it a more equitable playing field for a lot of different people and uh, you know, took it out of uh, melted some of the racial divides of uh, between musical genres and was able to get a lot of airplay on MTV on white suburban radio stations. And then the album sold hugely, you know, it's, it's not only the it's, well, it's the number one selling album of all time worldwide. It is however, only the number two, in the United States. Trivia question, do you know what the number one best-selling album of all time in the U.S. is? I'm worried it's a Guns N' Roses no. album. I'm, it's, okay, good. So it's not a Use Your Illusion no, it's, album. it's the Eagles. It's the Eagles' oh. greatest hits. So. Right. <laughs> okay. Which they have re-released 16 times, so it's right. kind of cheating. And, and um, to that point, uh, one of the most interesting things about Thriller is that after Jackson died... Thriller charted again. It sold more than 100,000 copies that week. Uh, and uh, Jackson became the first artist to sell more than a million song downloads in one week at that time. And wow. it became then the so, 14th best-selling uh, album of 2009. Uh, yeah. That's uh, nuts. With over 1.27 million copies sold that, uh, that year. But but what I'm interested, you brought up an interesting point, and we'll get into the, I think the racial barriers in a minute. But I, I think one of the things that was so interesting is this was the first album that really hit the international market, and and it was because they wanted to like normally you would do uh, U.S. release, and then you'd have the exporters buy it, ship it to Europe, um, and you would take kind of a hit from album sales. But what CBS did is they, they got all of the international manufacturers lined up and they were able to do simultaneous worldwide launches, which actually started albums doing that. This was the first album that did that. And I thought that's, yeah, I thought that was so interesting. Like what were CBS and Epic doing before then? I mean, they had the capacity, um, but how interesting that, this was the first, and you and I talk a lot about this. So those of you who follow our podcast, you know, we're always interested in how are things created for international versus domestic markets. 
And, and this is one of those things that this was an album that was really created for the entire world. And, and we talked about that more, but they even did that with their, their singles. This was the first album where they released concurrent singles where while Billie Jean was in the top 10, I think they released beat it. Um, like, let's see what they do, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it's, well, cause it, yeah, logistically, been, it just did all this crazy stuff, not just, you know, socioculturally. Right. It had been conventional wisdom that if you release competing singles, you sort of eat your own lunch, but thriller showed it didn't have to be that way. And for a time, it seemed like, you know, there was a possibility Michael Jackson could even encroach on the Beatles record of having all five number one songs at the same time, which uh, as as happenstance was was because of how international singles are released uh, and because of the British invasion was so late to come to the U.S. that they're just there was this giant buildup of Beatles singles that all hit at the same time and they all came they all made it to the top five so uh but but Jackson was just like yeah we could we could do it and the entire album was built around that premise Um, it it also shattered a lot of barriers in terms of how I think you and I think of the album um I mean for me I remember this album very clearly it was it was one of two albums i remember clear as day listening to in the car as my mom would take us to preschool so nice. very clear memories of that i also remember watching the premiere of thriller and right. and the making of thriller documentary that went along with it first of all i'm being scared by it but um <laughs> okay. but also uh you know, like also understanding like, wow, that that was a huge cultural moment. What what about right. you? What do you how do you remember? So I, I do. I remember uh, the vinyl. Uh, I remember the tiger on it on the, how you had Michael in the cool suit in the front and then you'd flip it over and he was playing with the tiger on the back. So it it, it had everything about it was this this imagery, this really interesting imagery. I, I remember uh, there they ended up paying something like 500000 to make this video where normally it was only costing 30 or 1000 or so. So they actually got MTV and Showtime to pitch in for it um, so MTV could get the the exclusive rights. Um, in fact, they they had they put it on a, the movie screen. I think it opened for Fantasia in the theater. Which wow. didn't make too many parents happy, but they did that so it could get it could be up for an Oscar. Um, I remember an article on Billboard said that it was getting a 1.2 rating on MTV. Like MTV was actually getting ratings in Nielsen because Thriller was on twice an hour. That's crazy. Um, I mean, cable, and, and, especially in those days, would never. Oh yeah, get ratings. That's huge. Well, and and I remember. It was just something that was so great that we didn't we didn't think about the the social cultural influence. And what I mean by that is, it was just Michael Jackson was an f- amazing artist. He was just the best pop star, R and B star. I mean, everybody liked Off the Wall. Uh, of course, we were we were going to like Thriller this album, but uh, it's interesting to read about it now. And and I know you're 
you've read this, this a lot too, is, you know, MTV wasn't playing a lot of black artists back then. They weren't playing Rick James. Uh, they didn't play Super Freak. They didn't play a lot of similar artists. And they kind of got labeled as being sort of this racist, um, you know, white artist only sort of station. And I think CBS was the first to go and say, look, if you don't play Billie Jean, which I believe at the time MTV didn't want to, but, you know, if, if you're not going to play Billie Jean, then you forget to hear from us in the future. But I I, I know you, you remember a quote more specifically than I do, if I remember correctly. Yeah, according to this article in Blender, CBS Records President Walter Yetnikoff called MTV and said, quote, I'm not going to give you any more videos and I'm going to go public and effing tell them about the fact that you don't want to play music by a black guy. <laughs> wow. That's pretty good. And I'm sure I, I, I know there was a, a quote from MTV that said something like there was never a question we were putting it on. Sure. Uh, there was only a delay that we wanted to show the clip to other people, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. But yeah, I, I think people in and around the music industry know which of those stories to believe I would I would well, and, and sometimes it so. just takes someone, you know, being willing to kick in the door like that. And that's what this was. And it was so unstoppable. And all of the stars aligned. And it made it so that, like, for you and me, it doesn't seem at all weird. Or at all momentous. It's just yeah. it, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson was, you know, part of our life growing up that... He was pop music. Yeah. And we take that for granted. Well, and in this case, yeah. he became MTV. I mean, people uh, and music critics everywhere say it's really hard to take away the the album from the visuals because each of the, I mean, you have, right. which we'll talk about independently, but, you know, the, the artistry of Billie Jean, the, the choreography of Beat It, and of course, 14 Delirious, Vincent Price, cameo minutes of thriller um but and, and that's that's just three of the singles um epic kept cranking them out because you know normally you only had what two yeah. or three singles per album and they went well i guess as long as they keep going top 10 we can keep cranking them out and sure enough seven of the nine and we'll talk about them all landed in top 10 right. they were all top 10 singles Amazing. uh i think yeah, remind me if I'm wrong, but I think it spent 120 something weeks in a row on Billboard's 200. That sounds right to me. Um, I mean, which you don't get to be the number one selling album of all time if you don't play that way. So, yeah, you know, it it was yeah, it was just huge. I I wonder culturally, and then and you know, this was done before this whole digital age. Mm -hmm. I partly worry that if Thriller had been released in 2015, if the digital download era might have detracted from its relevance. Because again, this was one of those albums that you bought and you listened to all the way through. Right. You, they were, it was just an incredible album. You, you were never able to parse out the songs one from another because they were all amazing. Well, but, and, and part of that is, you know, now the, the medium is the message. And right. 
you know, listening to an LP on vinyl, you listen to the whole thing. Nowadays, you you go on Spotify, Drake drops a new album. Yeah, Drake briefly had five songs in the top 40 one week uh, when when he released his most recent album, which was huge and not something that that was generally happened to most people. And then a week later, only one of them was left because everybody went and listened right. to all of the songs. And so everyone on their initial playthroughs, those all got counted in the charts uh, because they were able to count all of them as yeah. singles being played on Spotify and YouTube and, and these various other outlets. It isn't quite the same. I, I think Thriller was also seen as being... Uh, maybe not a cohesive whole, not not as though it was a concept album or anything like that. But they also had a ton of other tracks that they they recorded and then just discarded. They're like, yeah, this isn't this isn't gonna make it. And those tracks are all still out there. Right. Um, but they, you know, they they put a lot into this and making sure that it was as solid as it could be, and and that's what made it so irrepressible. Yeah, I, I, and it came at such an important time. I, re, I remember record sales were, were really lagging in the late 70s, early 80s. And I think Epic themselves had had to lay off a bunch of people right before this. So it, not only was it culturally relevant in in getting deserving artists more airtime, and you and I talked about this in the Mount Rushmore of Classic Rock podcast, this this was one of those albums that made people recognize or, or not recognize uh, boundaries across genres, regardless of who the artist was. Um, but I think it also really helped the music industry like, for all the reasons we've talked about. It brought video back into the medium. It brought international distribution back into the medium, which is now a huge portion of the market. It, it just really changed. Uh, and the marketing, you know, being able to promote multiple singles which we wouldn't do today digitally if if we didn't have groundbreaking albums like this and i think we take that for granted where you know people don't have to put cohesive albums out anymore they don't have to put you know the super unknowns or the the thrillers or some of these albums that you just side one side two you don't skip around yeah, I, th I think we're partly going away from that yeah um, and i i think thriller is always a good reminder of doesn't have to be a concept album to be a f an amazing right. 50 minutes of music. Right. So you know? what I want to do is I want to dig into each okay. of these tracks individually. Uh, there's only nine of them, but each okay. of them has some stories to tell. Uh, in order to do that, I want to go through them in album order, but I'm going to start with the two songs that were not singles because I feel like they're... Okay. They're a little bit less salient, and I'm also doing that because otherwise uh, we would we would end with the the Rod Temperton song "The Lady in My Life," which is a little bit of a downer. Uh, it's a it's a slow ballad. Not not saying it's a bad song, but it, it you know compared to the the other big hits on Thriller, I think that's uh, so. We want to end on a high note. So let's start with "The Lady in My Life" and "Baby Be Mine." Both were songs written okay. by Rod Temperton. Sort of, I mean, they're different songs from one another. The Lady in My Life is definitely a ballad. Baby Be Mine is sort of a, you know, a post-disco pop track. 
I don't have a ton of feelings about them one way or the other. I don't I don't know if you do. I liked Baby Be Mine because it's got that little funk in it. Um, yeah, Lady of My Life is it's kind of like uh, what's the what's the one from Off the Wall? She's out of my life. Is that what the she's out yeah. of my life? That, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. It's <laughs> I'm like they're just trying to redo. She's out of my. But life. But you look and... at how other R&B artists use the ballad. Uh, you look at mm-hmm. Boys to Men, for instance, or, mm-hmm. the, you know, these, that being able to have a, a moving ballad on a, a relatively upbeat album. Uh, I think my only mm-hmm. issue was it should have been in the middle of the album, not at the end, because I, I think we've mm-hmm. seen that ballads kind of nestle into the middle of the album as a break between two sets um but uh, yeah i I, these are both good songs but compared to the other ones i think uh the anonymity is is not because of the songwriting skill but rather just um what what the other songs meant it to the to the industry right completely agree and i think the the other the more contemporaneous example of a of a pop ballad being used very well would be frequent Jackson collaborator Lionel Richie and like say you say me or something like that. So like yeah, obviously right. there there are other things like that, but the, these were these were there. They're great songs, um, and and probably on another album, uh, on and off the wall, they would be highlights. Uh, but this is Thriller. So it's just not, not quite, uh, not quite there. I'm, 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 yeah, I, I'm always interested in, do you feel like he went back to the well with the ballad? Yeah. Um, too many times in, in that regard, you know, I think it, it like, was a definitely seen as a safe choice. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Eddie Murphy hadn't shown up yet to, uh, really take the piss out of she's out of my life yet. Yeah. So. yeah I mean, <laughs> a baby be mine, probably my, the one I like more than the other two. Um, but yeah. yeah, neither really, um, get the other songs out of, out of my right. head. So, thing. so let's, let's start with, uh, where the album starts. You want to be starting something. Want to be starting something. That's right. Yeah. I do not want to be starting something. <sighs> Unless it's unless it involves Starlight, <laughs> yeah, I want to be starting Thriller, so I'm I'm cool That's with right. that. Uh, such an upbeat number. Um, this just kind of comes out of nowhere. You like immediately know, like, whoa, okay, we gotta get up and dance and gotta listen to this. Uh, I'm trying to remember what his the impetus was from this. I know he he wrote the the music, and I I, I can't remember. I, uh, if I remember, both both this and Billie Jean were both sort of self reflections on dealing with stardom, and want to be starting something was specifically about like gossip and uh, paparazzi and uh, rumors about about him in the press, and he's just like you know don't don't start it with me because. You know, do you do you really want to do you really want to start something? And and both both this and uh, interestingly beat it. There's kind of this 
not hyper aggressive, but uh, he's like, you know, hey, I'm like, don't don't mess with me. Don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. Which which I don't know if that's any better or worse of a lyric than you're a vegetable. You're a buffet. They eat off you. But yeah, I think it is one of those. I, I know they talk about it in Billboard as it was sort of the beginning of the the paranoia, mm-hmm. how how just gossip and back talking and all that stuff really really affected him because he he just wanted to make music and be liked and I, I think the it's that's a really interesting. Of course, my favorite part of the the song is the the chant, which as as we found out was was borrowed from uh, Manu Jabango's Sol Makosa which I think has finally ended their lawsuits uh, yeah. about the use of it. Yeah, um, settled but, out of court. You know, does, yeah. does that mean anything or is it just, you know, as Homer Simpson said, one of those things rock stars say, like, shamalama ding dong or give peace a chance. <laughs> I love the give peace a chance. Uh, I, 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 I've never seen uh, that it, it means anything in particular. Mm-hmm. Um I, th- I think uh, Makosa is a type of um, musical genre uh, with with a specific kind of percussion um, and and guitar sort of fusion. Um, I know it, the the specific lyrics come from a song called Soul Makosa, um, mm-hmm. which was a pretty big hit. In Cameroon, uh, Cameroonian soccer team. I think uh, it was a B side to their anthem. Yeah, I know he sued Michael Jackson in 83, uh, and I think they finally have settled yeah. uh, the undisclosed amount. I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah, he, he did want to be starting something with Michael Jackson, and he got some money yes. out of it. <laughs> he gets, poor Michael gets sued sued quite a bit. Um, yeah. But, uh, and I maybe, maybe here, song. yeah, maybe here for decent reason. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, if you're going to steal something so blatantly, then... But a, a great song to, to start off. I what, I think the thing that's interesting about this is uh, that song's six minutes long. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I expect uh, an upbeat pop song, especially one that's going to hit the, uh, the top 40, going to be three, four, five minutes tops. But, you know, he just keeps going. And... Uh, you know, chanting at the end, but uh, I think what's what's great about this song is it starts off aggressive and it just continues to build, with, with the exception of the lull around your vegetable, you're a buffet, but it ends so strong, I I can't say like oh you know that that song really needed to cut the fat. I don't know. I don't know. If you have any opinions on that? I mean, to to think that it made. I mean, it was number five. Um, and, and it wasn't even the, I think it was what the fourth, the fourth single from Thriller. So, uh, you know, normally by the fourth single, people are kind of getting album fatigue. But here is uh, this this great song that that still made it. I, the the one thing I like about Wannabe starting something, and let me know what you think about this. I think it's a perfect transition from Off the Wall. Yes, Good I point. think if you listen to Off the Wall and then you go right into Thriller, it's sort of a perfect bridge between. Here's what I did on my last album. I'm still going to give you the groove, but I'm I'm going to change some of the sensibilities a little bit. Um, 
and and I think it's it's one of those when I want to listen to Thriller, but I also want to listen to Off the Wall. It it kind of gives me the ability to to do both. It's it's sort of a great a great bridge between the two albums. Let's let's move to the Girl Is Mine uh, because as a as a Paul McCartney fan, I know you have much to say about our our the, our good Paul McCartney and his work. I, I know this this song was Michael Jackson was so excited. I know to, well, I don't know, but it's told that um, Michael was really excited to do this song because he really wanted to work with Paul McCartney. He and Quincy Jones both. Um, so I I think if I remember, this was the first song they recorded before they started the album. Uh, they went down and worked on this with yeah, him and and they had and they had both previously worked on uh, a song say 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 that they had recorded for paul mccartney's tug of war album which didn't make it on tug of war but was later released on his pipes of peace after uh thriller came out um so you know there there was that that small moment of collaboration between all of them and um, I'm going to commit some heresy here. This song's kind of terrible. <laughs> 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 I mean, I, I love Paul McCartney and all, but it, it, by the end, it's like, you know, Michael, <laughs> the, the breakdown where they start talking <laughs> to each other. No, Paul, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I can't believe it. There are pieces of this song that are great. There are pieces that feel like artifacts that that don't age well and i think of all of the songs on this album this is perhaps the one that has aged the least well i i mean i love paul mccartney i love him dearly but i mean you're not going to get a ton of argument from me other than i i think the song is it it is dated a little bit Mm -hmm. um but i i think it's one of those where you just have these two icons, and you can tell they're just having fun. Absolutely, you you can tell that that they just they just you know he and Quincy Jones and Paul McCartney are just probably in the studio going, "This is a hoot. Let's just let's just make this work." So, um, yeah, I th- I think it's it's not the best song. Um, it still went to number two. Um, because but the doggone just, girl is mine, mine. I mean, where else are you going to get a song with with such two great voices? I think is is part of it. But now that's true. Yeah, and and also, yeah. I I think you know this song. Michael Jackson wrote it. He could have done this song with Lionel Richie. He could have done it with Stevie Wonder. He could have done it with with anyone else. But the fact that he did it with Paul McCartney. And they're both arguing over the same girl. Like you and I don't think about that as being a thing. Uh-huh. Right. But who who is that girl? Is she white? Yep. Is she black? Is she Asian? Is she Latina? We don't know. Uh, and in the same way that, uh, you know, this was sort of Paul McCartney's collaboration era. And also on the Tug of War album, he'd done songs with Stevie Wonder, including Ebony and Ivory. Right. And I'm sure that the social message of that uh, was was not lost on Sir Paul, and uh, and it was definitely not lost on Michael Jackson. And one of the reasons why they really wanted to put this out there and why it was kind of revolutionary 
uh, I know at the time, like uh, a lot of critics looked at this as the it was the lead single from the album. And people are like, oh, what the hell? Michael Jackson is writing for a white audience. Great. Great. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for selling us out. I think this was a song for white people and uh, saying like, hey, you can check this out. It's safe. It's okay for you to like this. And Paul McCartney is the bridge that, uh, you know, his Beatle presence was able to help uh, bring in some of that uh, for for a lot of white audiences who might have been recalcitrant otherwise. I uh, I know that he also got sued for this song, um, <laughs> supposedly similar to something called "Please Love Me Now," um, but this the girl is mine i it appears that quincy asked him to record it against you know michael didn't seem to be for or against it but uh woke up in the middle of the night and sang it um into a cassette recorder um and i i believe he played it for the court case when he was deposed so but i i guess they were recording in Westlake. Um, they filmed most of it. Christopher Cross was there. Dick Clark, Lionel Richie, Latoya, Quincy Jones. So apparently there was a lot of traffic around this song. So um, kind of neat that everybody was able to to be part of that song. Yeah, I, I, that that's the one thing is I know we've talked about at some point doing uh, an episode about uh, plagiarism and music plagiarism and right. when it might be inadvertent. Uh, this this is such a, a simple melody. If you said, hey, did is it possible that someone else simultaneously or previously came up with something like this? Oh, yeah. Was it plagiarism? Eh. I'll, I'll give the benefit of the doubt here to Michael Jackson because if they had if they had 600 demos to work from if they had 100 demos to work from uh, right. and and songsmiths uh, you know of the likes of Michael Cimbello and and Tepperton you know they're they're not going to plagiarize someone else's work so well and and like I, you said we'll get into this. <laughs> What is the difference between plagiarizing and an homage? And I mean, there's only so many ways you can write a chord, mm-hmm. so many ways you can sing a song. If if you haven't heard something, or if you have heard something, how how do you how do you go about resolving that? I, I I'll have to send it to you, but there's a a song that pretty much rips off Fleetwood Mac's Dreams, and most people say, oh, it's Fleetwood Mac-esque or Fleetwood Mac-like. Well, if you listen to it, you go, no, they pretty much ripped that off. Yeah. So, but is it knowingly? Is it with intent? Like, there's a lot of gray area about what that means. And and I think that's the difficulty. Michael Jackson, as one of the greatest songwriters ever, has got to have, you know, like Prince, he's got to have thousands and thousands of song ideas in his head. Do they all come from other? I, I, he's got to pull them from the 
the spiritual ethos of where everybody pulls music from. And sometimes you might just pull down stuff that sounds like something else. Right. I don't, I don't think delicious, um, but right. It's just, it's really interesting how, how often I, I, if Michael Jackson was not famous, would he get sued if he had sold 15,000 records instead of, you know, 150 million? Maybe that's the difference. Yeah, probably not. I think, you know, he, he was definitely a target because when you're the best selling album of all time and, uh, and right. that song ends up being a top 10 hit, someone's going to take notice and uh, be like, oh, hey, you know, that that kind of sounds like this thing that I did. I can, uh, right. you know, I should sue over that because it sounds like he ripped me off. So, right. Yeah. So then we get to the title track. Yes. Wow. Um, first of all, what a weird song. <laughs> I mean, it it yes. it starts off. The first thing you hear are spooky sound effects of doors and and people walking on creaky floorboards, and uh, then you hear this this sort of disco synthesizer in the background. And then it hits the 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 main chord uh, uh, from the chorus, da-na, da-na. and then uh, that that funky bass line. That song should not work. It should not work. Right. But it does. What makes Thriller work for you? You know, I we talked about it earlier, but. What works for me is my first recollection of the song is the video. And to me, mm-hmm. when you listen to that song, you cannot parse out the visual aspect from the song. You, you can't listen to Thriller. You can't listen to Billie Jean. You can't listen to Beat It without his presence visually. It's funny that the little things they did for Thriller, like adding weight to his leather jacket so he looked tougher. Um just the way that they set all of the visuals up, I think, make it much more, I don't want to say poignant, but the, the song makes more sense. Because um, otherwise, it's just this song about a guy who thinks he's a werewolf. or And for some reason, Vincent Price shows up as the best cameo of all time. Um, yeah, we'll get to that. But it, without the visual, I don't think... I don't think it works as well long term. I I agree. Uh, I think this song without the video doesn't work quite as well. Man, that video. That video is as close to perfect as you're going to get. Oh, it's great. And it's John Landis. (laughs) Yeah. How do you get John Landis to do that? Such a great video. It's amazing. It's uh, amazing. And it, it starts off and it's this great. It, 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 it's a it's a meta video to start with. Michael Jackson's on a date, and they're watching a movie, and uh, and it's about a guy who looks like Michael Jackson is Michael Jackson, and he turns into a werewolf. And it's a great like uh, you know Americana horror uh, vibe, uh, like uh, American Werewolf uh, meets American Graffiti essentially. And then they leave the movie theater and Michael Jackson starts singing to his date about, you know, spooky things happening. And then suddenly he's a zombie 
and then all the zombies start dancing. Uh, it's it's just it's just cool. It's just yeah, cool. And and there's so many great stories around it. I mean, we've talked about the cost, and you know, it wanting to be part of the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um, Fred Astaire almost was almost in it because he was learning how to moonwalk. Uh, Jackie Onassis was working on the autobiography at the time. It's filmed at the junction of South Calzona and Union Pacific Avenue, which you can go to anytime you want. If you're in LA, it's, it's just everything about it was just so many funny, crazy things about the video. Um, and, and people still do the, I mean, everywhere you go, as soon as Halloween pops up, people do the right. thriller dance. It's 1983 right. people. 35 years ago and we still I still do the headless zombie thing I still do everywhere you go it's it's just great it's it's possibly more culturally salient because uh, we're in this like 80s nostalgia wave and everybody's everybody's up for it again and it's uh, you know there's there's a reason that it works we talked about Vincent Price and I want to talk a little more the fact that it's Vincent Price and the fact that he he says creatures crawl in the search of blood to terrorize y'all's neighborhood. Oh, it's hilarious. You know, it's just what what the heck of this? It's the funk of forty thousand years. Nice, uh, nice wordplay. That's there. the great line. Um, but again, I think it's this great bridge to white people saying like, "Hey, this is something you can." you can enjoy you can latch on to this too this is this is cool for you this is all right yeah i don't i don't know if that was the impetus behind it um that may be more in in my perception of how the record company chose to to market it i think that's why they did it the way they did um, because they Mm -hmm. saw the the crossover potential and how everybody would just i mean everybody would just respond to this album this this album is great no matter who you are how old you are um any of that kind of stuff so whether it conscious or subconscious i think i think you're right i think this was an album where everybody could pay attention to it everybody's there was a song or five on this album for everybody every single person so right yeah and uh just thriller is great uh, great as a as a title track. Let's move on to side B. Okay, because, flip it over. Flip the uh, vinyl. Flip the vinyl because as good as side A is, side B. Oh my gosh, side B. <laughs> Even though you just bagged on fifty percent of side A's songs, just so you know, <laughs> just, hey, just they're the they're still good songs. They're yeah. still good songs. All right, but yes, <laughs> beat it, beat it. Wow. Yes, I, I, I just the, what I, I, I I'm, I'm speechless about how great beat it is. As Quincy oh. Jones said, the black version of my Sharona <laughs> is what he, what he wanted it to be. He's like, my Sharona is so popular. I want to make uh, I want to make my version of it. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, and he, way better because my Sharona is a little bit insipid and uh, and repetitive, um, whereas beat it. I mean, that's here's the thing: 
Beat It is a pop song, but it's it's got the muscles of a rock song. That riff, and then that Eddie Van Halen guitar solo. Like, that... I, I would make an argument that that is one of the greatest guitar solos of all time. So, so and it's a great story because at first, Eddie thinks that it's a prank call. Really? So, yeah, so Quincy calls and he's like, this is Quincy Jones. And he's like, sure, you effing blankety blank. What do you want? He's like, I don't know anybody named Quincy. He's like, Quincy Jones, man. He's like, oh, my bad. Uh, Quincy asked him to come down and play on the record. And... And you know Michael Jackson's new record, and he, and Eddie goes, "quote Okay, ABC one two three and me. How's that gonna work, right?" right. Um, and he shows up, and there's Quincy, there's Michael Jackson, a bunch of engineers. Michael goes across the hall to do some children's speaking record, um, like ET, and he goes, "What do you want me to do?" And he goes, "Whatever you want to do." And he says, "Be careful when you say that. If you know anything about Eddie Van Halen, don't ever say do anything you want." Right. So. <laughs> You mean so this goes, mountain cha- of cocaine in front of me? <laughs> so he says, can I change some parts? So he changes, he, he chops in the pre-chorus, the chorus, took him about 10 minutes for the engineer to do it. And he puts two solos over the top of it. Um, Michael comes in and he goes, I changed the middle sections of your song. Eddie says that he was worried the bodyguards were going to kick him out. And he says, Michael turned to him and went, after listening to it quote wow thank you for having the passion to not just come in and blaze a solo but to actually care about the song and make it better unquote wow yeah so so he says then he goes to the tower records after uh the the song comes out and the solo comes on he says i hear kids in front of me going quote listen to this guy trying to sound like eddie van halen unquote <laughs> and then the- so Eddie taps the kid on the shoulder and he goes, hey, that is me. And the kids are like, well, no, <laughs> he said it was great. So it, it's so unmistakably Eddie Van Halen and, and specifically uh, 1984 era uh, Eddie Van Halen. So like, I, I don't think that I had heard anything quite so perfect as this on on previous Van Halen albums. But this was, you know, this was proto hot for teacher. And, right. Actually, um, it prevented it prevented 1984 from going number one. Really? Because you know, Thriller was oh, so popular. Thriller. It was. Yeah, Eddie later said that it was right after he burned his face in the Pepsi commercial, mm. or burned his hair, and and that he went back up to number one and prevented 84 from going to number one. And he says, and he agrees. He says there's never been an album that has created such a musical shift. And, you know, people asked him about a couple other albums, including Nevermind. And he said no, because uh, those albums didn't appeal to everyone like Thriller yeah. did. Agreed. And Never he mind. said he later Important got an album, but not not a cultural but, shift like this one. And he, says, yeah. and, he, and he said, I don't even think I'm credited on the record. It says guitar solo question mark or guitar solo Frankenstein, which was the name of Eddie Van Halen's guitar at the time. He's not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh he says he was not paid. He had to bring his own beer. And Quincy wrote him a letter thanking him, which was signed, quote, the effing blah, 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 which is what he called him on the <laughs> So that is my my favorite part of Beat It, other than just the, the video, you know, which had, I believe, actual uh, Bloods and Crips in it. No way. 
Yeah, if if I remember wow. correctly, that said they made cameos in it, though though that you know I read that on Mental Floss, but mm. that that whole Eddie Van Halen story of just how great it was to work with Quincy Jones is is my favorite part of that that whole thing. It's it's great, and that that song is just amazing, and that that video is also amazing, and the fact that you know people are still doing homages to that video and doing doing that that dance that Michael Jackson does where he's snapping and uh, it's just such an iconic look as as perfect as Thriller was it's as near to perfect as as that is um, beat it however in my opinion the the superior song okay. in that regards I, I just beat it is is absolutely phenomenal um in in my opinion though however um the next track is the the mothership okay of the album is billy jean uh as as great as beat it is billy jean like takes it to 11 um you know beat it is upbeat hard rock uh and then billy jean has this like smooth funk feel one of the best bass lines ever so so absolutely cool and uh and and you know just is is singable is danceable and uh just just absolutely great and and that video funny that you mentioned that because uh daryl hall tells the story that michael jackson came up to him and said thank you for letting me crib the bass line so from I can't go for that, which is, as you know, my favorite Hall and Oates song. Uh, no can yep, do. Yeah. But, but he, when they're recording "We Are the World," he comes up to him and says, "Hey, I, I sort of borrowed that for Billy Jean. What are you going to say to Michael Jackson?" Billy Jean was, according to Quincy Jones, mixed ninety-one times. Wow. He almost his car almost lit on fire. I guess he was driving his Rolls Royce during a recording session break. And his bottom of his car was on fire. And someone pulled up next to him in a motorcycle and said, hey, man, your car's on fire. This is this is in uh, the the book, his autobiography, Moonwalk. Um, but yeah, I guess his Rolls Royce mm-hmm. was on fire on Ventura. Song was not about any particular woman. Those of you confused that it's not about Billie Jean King, uh, which is why Quincy Jones wanted to call it Not My Lover instead of Billie Jean. Um, but I, I read from Michael's work that it's about several groupies who were were around him uh, in his musical days. Right. That that semi autobiographical dealing with stardom piece. And I think one of the more interesting things about this is after his death, uh, the the people who came forward and said, "Oh yeah, that that song was about me, and I'm I'm Michael right. Jackson's love child." And, you know, of course, there's no more way to contest that necessarily. But it's like, really? Really? You're, you're going you're gonna to come forward and be like, oh, yeah, that Billie Jean was about me. I was that baby whose eyes were just like Michael Jackson's. Yeah, there's a, there's a joke on Billboard that says it's the, potentially the first and only time in history that a pop music artist insists they aren't getting laid. <clears throat> right. Which I never really thought about that. I, 
Like, no, 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 I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I always took it as a, a strong birth control song. Like, make sure to wear a condom because that that's what's going to happen. That's That was the lesson that that a teenage me took from Billie Jean once I figured out what it was about. Because as a kid, I didn't know. I was just like, oh, Michael Jackson's like dancing. And when he walks on the sidewalk, the, the tiles light up under his feet. Like, that's cool. And then the and then of course the greatest television moment when he did it in the Motown, yes, live, and it was just I just remember watching that and my jaw just dropping like what an amazing moment. Do you remember the part where he yells, "Do think twice," in the second verse? Where it's like, "Do think twice," think and it twice. echoes back, back, back. Yep. Well, apparently that was recorded through a five-foot-long cardboard tube. Quincy Jones, you because, maniac! Well, it, it was it was his uh, Bruce Sweden, I, I think, if I get the name right. He's got a couple books about recording with the two of mm-hmm. them, and he's got all kinds of crazy, like kick drum covers, and he would pull stuff out of the kick drum with square wood panels and put cinder blocks in it. And anyway, it, he just did this crazy stuff to get low frequency and secondhand pick up things. And he would record stuff in the shower, uh, all kinds of really cool stuff. And, and the, I think there's two books, one's in the studio with Michael Jackson. I think the other one is make mine music. So those of you who are interested in really funky recording techniques from, from the eighties and seventies, that's, that's got some really interesting life stuff before in it. pro tools kids. That's right. <laughs> That's when we actually had to move levels around and scream through cardboard tubes <laughs> and scream through cardboard tubes. That's uh, but yeah, the, the, the crazy stuff with the video, people didn't want to play it, man. It's, it, but, and just how much mixing it happened, where all the music came from. It's just a, a fantastic song. It's, it, I think, and I'm I'm going to go out on a limb. I think this is Michael Jackson's best work, Billy Jean. I, I was going to say the same thing. It's oh, my God. it's my favorite of his songs. I, I love Human Nature, though. I mean, uh, it's such a okay, great so, song. But but Billy Jean, I think is is his best all around work. I don't think it's his most important. Um, right. But I I think it's the one that if I were to do a triptych, I think Michael uh, Billy Jean would probably be his his most representative it would be mm. the one that you go to yeah well let's let's move on then to human nature because i would also put that just below billy jean because damn this is a near perfect song it is just that's uh, amazing what, written by who wrote it do you remember it's uh one of the guys from toto right correct Toto wrote it because they didn't go cassette shopping. Really? They were out of, yeah. So they were working on demos for Quincy Jones. Uh, one day they were, they were trying to record some demos and he reused one of the tapes because they were out of blank cassettes. Um, he didn't like two of them, but he loved the the next one, which was the early version of human nature, which I do not think was necessarily written for, the album per se. Yeah, it it stands in a pretty stark contrast to the rest of the album and yet it fits so perfectly. It's so yeah. weird 
how that is because it's a very different song and all of the ways that I feel like the lady in my life is a a sort of just it's just kind of their ballad human nature is just a sweet beautiful flowing song that is is also one of Jackson's best if this had been on any other album it would be like oh human nature that's the best song on the album yeah yeah and so I have a specific memory of of human nature as well okay. as that right after Jackson died and there was a tribute concert John Mayer came out and played human nature one of the best covers of all time it, it, it was phenomenal yeah. and it it reminded me like after Jackson died there was this huge outpouring of people playing bad and beat it and thriller and and those songs and yet somehow human nature people had just kind of forgotten about it and he came out and just I feel like just blew the roof off of everything with that and it was just you know if there were to be a lasting legacy from Michael Jackson's music um, I, I think the, the humanitarian part of him would want us to remember human nature right. and we are the world because it's it's just so gorgeous the the actual story um, running low on cassette tapes he used the tape which he had already recorded human nature putting the thriller songs on the reverse side and marking that on the label that Quincy should listen to he listened to those songs but didn't think they were right for the album but he didn't stop the tape and the cassette had auto reverse so it started playing the other side Quincy described it, quote, all of a sudden at the end, there's this silence. And then why, why? Da, 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 da. And he goes, this is where we want to go because it's got such a wonderful flavor. He said he had goosebumps talking about just the, the, the overall flow of the song. And then he had John Bettis come in and, and write the new lyrics. And it was the last song selected, which ousted a song called Carousel, which I believe is on the new version of Thriller. I believe uh, that is the case as well. Yeah. And I'm much happier for to have Human Nature, which was the fifth single and also hit number two. Yeah. And and I think that's how you do a ballad. Yeah. Uh, and and very out of left field. I mean I it just yeah. it it shouldn't so much about this album, it shouldn't work. And it does. And it's beautiful the way that it came together. So last but definitely not least, PYT, Pretty Young. <laughs> oh. Ah, this song just cracks me up. I don't I don't know why. I think I love you, PYT. Pretty young with thing. The only song the only song his sister is sang on with him. It's it's just such a bop. It's just such a fun song. I think I love you. It just makes you wanna get up and, and shake your butt a little. You know, ain't nothing wrong with that. So much fun. James Ingram, I believe, wrote PYT. And I think something, I guess he, Quincy Jones's wife at the time had lingerie that said Pretty Young Things. Oh, no way. So he had that as the title and, and he put a bunch of writers on it. And he, Ingram put his version out and Quincy said, quote, we're cutting this tomorrow. Just like that. That's great. So 
That's that. I, I hope he came. That about. story is true because that it, it should be true. If it's not, that's that's a beautiful story. It was on NPR, so I. Well, you know what those depending on depending on <laughs> if those socialists said it, I'm sure that it, they did some. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> right. They they fact check their sources. They they know they know oh, about the course. making of Thriller. NPR, your source for all things. Welcome, welcome to Thriller Chat. Thriller Chat. Can you imagine? <laughs> for your drive home. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> T- talk about being safe for white um, people. <laughs> but this is a yeah the 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 whole weird vocals near the end. I thought were the weird part. Um, like the the chipmunky vocals. Yeah. That was the only yeah. problem I had. Yeah, with this a little bit. Song. It's. I mean, it's a. It is much more of a. Um, you know, an an early Jackson's song. It it, it sounds more like. Uh, it could have been done by the Jackson Five, uh, or it could have been on Off the Wall. But just a you know a great little pop song. And, and I think still works pretty well. Yeah, it is a great song. Yeah, it is a great song. I think whereas some of the other, um, like you said, some of the Temperton songs were also great. Uh, I don't know. PYT may not age like those others have, just because I think it's a little more lighthearted. And and so, I, I think and I, anyone who is sensitive to um, Jackson's allegations of of pedophilia or something may have oogie feelings about a song about the PYT pretty young thing. So I think, I think there's that for why it may not have aged well, but if you can separate for a moment, the, the artist from the art, um, that's still a, a pretty, pretty amazing song. And that will be another podcast. Stay tuned for, um, cause I think songs about pedophilia component. You know, I just, Another component you and I talk about is can you separate art from artist? Um, you know, the Polanskis and yep. the, you know, the Michael Jacksons. Is is there a way to do that? And, yeah, I do it. I do it every Halloween when I go back to do another watch of Rosemary's Baby. So. <laughs> oh, congratulations on that is such a yeah. great movie, though. So they they go. Uh, I usually just watch Eyes Wide Shut with my eyes wide open. <laughs> there you go. That's that's also great. Congrats, uh, congrats to so me. So <laughs> I, I think that more or less wraps up. I mean, we've gone through every track on Thriller. Final thoughts before we go into This Week in Greatness. So I want to talk about the extended edition because the best part to me about Thriller 25 Okay, the girl is mine with Will I Am is is pretty entertaining. Pyt with Will I Am is pretty entertaining. Um, Beat it with Fergie is a train wreck. Um, <laughs> not my favorite at all. But they do have the twenty four second Vincent Price excerpt, including the stuff that got cut. Hmm. And if you haven't listened to it, I think that's worth the price of admission. At least finding it because. The, the entirety of that, some of the other, just the cheesy stuff that was cut, like all of those silly, I, I mean, it, it's just one of those things that you'll never hear in another song ever again. You'll never hear a master of horror basically rapping over a pop song. I just wanted to make sure we talked about 
I mean, he got like a thousand bucks for it. And it's and the laugh at the end, with the creaking door and the footsteps. I mean, it's it's the ambiance of a song like that. You can't repeat anymore. You can't do it in a studio. You can't digitally master it. It's just it's just really, really cool. So um, if you have a chance to listen to Thriller 25, uh, it's great to hear his work because most of you are probably too young to to have watched a lot of Vincent Price's cheesy horror films, but but back then they were something else, man. They were they were spooky stuff. They're, they're worth revisiting, you know. It it is the season. Go check out the original House on Haunted Hill, or uh, oh yeah, you know the the Mask of Red Death. You know, there's some that was freaky. Yeah, there's some there's some great stuff in there, and and Vincent Price like there's a reason he was who he was. And yeah. uh, he had that reputation. I don't. We we just don't have anyone like that these days. Like, yeah. who who are our masters of horror these days? And like, do any of them have any sort of iconic voice or signature that we can think of? No. I mean, no. You know, there there just isn't anybody like that. I think the closest we might have in terms of a recognizable voice, if someone got Werner Herzog to do something on a, you know, on a major pop album, then that might be something. Um, right. But even then, I don't know if it's quite the same. I think you're uh, I think your great horror people are outside of the U.S. I mean, you look at South Korea. Mm hmm. You know, the, all the people that did the host and I mean, I will, I will forever say that the creepiest horror films I've seen in the last 10 years are all, you know, South Korean from the Asia Pacific, whether it's our point spider forest, we'll, we'll talk about some of these in the future. But I mean, you look at, you look at Vincent Price's horror library. I mean, the dude was doing four or five horror films a year. Yeah. He did the fly. He did the house of wax where he was the super creepy oh, professor. That's a good one. Yeah. House, house of usher. Um, I mean, he was in, it just did all kinds of crazy. Uh, well, and then he did, you know, Dr. Goldfoot in the bikini machine. So you, you don't, you don't pick winners every single time. It's, it's the David pumpkins. There's a hundred floors. You're not going to get them all right. right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> David, that's what we need. We need Tom Hanks as David pumpkins on the next Drake album. That'll, oh, that'll do it. I'm David pumpkins. His own thing. His own and, thing. and like you said, I mean, the, the guy, we also don't have a lot of people who span a career uh, like Vincent price. And, and I think you talked to, you made a great point about the cameos on this album this album is filled with the best of their craft, right? Um, you've got Eddie Van Halen, who you and I would agree is one of the 10 best guitarists of all time. Right. You got Vincent Price, the master of horror. You've got Quincy Jones, the master of production. Right. You've got, you know, you, you've got engineers and producers. Um, you got Paul McCartney, who is at least one of the top three Beatles of all time. <laughs> um, Right behind Davy Jones and uh, Neil Diamond. <laughs> I like that joke. I approve it. <laughs> if I could get a Beatles joke past you, then it's a win for I like me. It. But um, 
<laughs> so it's it, it just goes back to your point of not only does this album transcend all sorts of things, you know, culturally and and industry wide, but I think it really referenced a collaboration that that we don't see too often, where everybody just wanted to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, artists just wanted to be part of other artists' stuff, and you didn't need to get paid. They didn't need to have a shout out. They just they just wanted to work with other great people. Yeah. I, I think um, a lot of that was due to Quincy Jones and his place in the industry. The guy was just okay. able to put stuff like that together um, for, you know, several decades of his career, you know, and, and he used that to his advantage to manufacture the recording sessions for Thriller. And, you know, every single ounce of favors that he could call in, you oh. know, he was able to. And, uh, that's that's okay. great, and I'll I'll talk more about that when we get to my this week in greatness. Well, let's well let's let's do one more. I mean, I talked a lot about th- what what Thriller meant in terms of you know its importance from an artist perspective, but I, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about what you remember, but but what else is Thriller for you? I think Thriller is just like that perfect pop album. You know, everything works on it. And um, I, I, I don't want to say this because I think it sounds like I'm putting it down, but Thriller is the perfect lowest common denominator that you bring a group of people together. Doesn't matter their age, doesn't matter their backgrounds. Everyone can, can enjoy from that. And uh, it, people, people, everyone can agree. Like, yeah, okay, cool, thriller. That's that's cool, and that's really unique in this very balkanized uh, media landscape that we now have. It's also just a a lot, a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot of my childhood that's wrapped up in that, and so that nostalgia is a part of it, but coming to it as an adult I can appreciate the the craftsmanship and the work that went into that and uh, it 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 makes me want to you know do something do something like that be like okay what what can I really do to put my best efforts into something and really crystallize everything that I want to do and say that rarely happens for people um, but you know, if if thriller right. is a testament to anything, it's it's the testament to that too. Hard work and grit and sweat and talent all coming together to produce something that is truly amazing. Nice. Well, I think that's your segue right there. Okay. Uh, so that is why uh, thriller is great. So let's talk about what is great this week uh do you do you want to go first do you want me to i'll let you go first all right um because we have been talking so much about quincy jones um there is a documentary on netflix called quincy okay and it was made by rashida jones a star of the office and parks and recreation and the social network who also happens to be quincy jones's daughter and um this is her documentary directorial debut. Um, and because of that, there is this really beautiful 
loving lens that she puts on her father and a level of access that she gets that no one else would. Okay. Um, times when he is in the hospital recovering from, from things and talking to him and filming him doing um, physical therapy and, and other things that there's no way any, any other documentary filmmaker would ever have access to do. Right. But then she's also going back into the archives and uh, bringing back videos and, and photos and recordings with Frank Sinatra hmm. and, um, and, and people who made Thriller. And she's there in the studio for the, the 25th anniversary recording of, uh, of Thriller that, that they're doing. It's just really beautiful. It's um, Quincy Jones is right. fascinating. Um, the, the amount that he's done and uh, the reasons why he has done it. And um, it's just such an inspiring story and extremely well told. Uh, maybe it's a little bit hagiographic, uh, but at the same time, there's a level of warts and all that she leaves in, in terms of, uh, you know, Quincy Jones's previous wives to, right. <laughs> to her mother, uh, you know, sort of bagging on him in their relationships and, and what went wrong with them. Uh, so I feel really evenly balanced, um, um, just as a documentary, incredibly well put together by someone who uh, I've always been like, where, where is she? Like Rashida Jones is hugely talented and I keep waiting for her to have that, that next big thing that is her, her huge breakout. And uh, I just feel like it's, it's never happened. And uh, so maybe the best movie we'll, we'll ever have with her is uh, uh, as a, uh, as Paul Rudd's uh, fiance <laughs> and I love you, man. So, yes, yes. and she's great in that <laughs> big time, big time <laughs> slapping the bass. <laughs> so anyway, um, it, it, yeah. Uh, Rashida Jones. Great. Quincy Jones. Great. It's called Quincy. It's on Netflix. Cool. Check it well, out. Well, I, uh, I'm going to go to the softer side. Uh, the 2018 American hero dog awards. Uh, are going to be it is going to be announced on October 24th, I believe, on the Hallmark Channel. Um, so, we'll, the the dog that is has won this year is his name's uh, the the dog is named Chichi, and uh, she was found in a dumpster in South Korea with basically no legs. Okay. So she was inside a trash bag. Her legs were bound, had rotted away um, from wires that were wrapped around them. Uh, so they found her. They they amputated her limbs. Uh, they they was adopted by a family in Arizona. Um, but even through all of this, she was just kept wagging her tail. Her eyes were still bright, so they adopted her. Um, they, they found new prosthesis for her, someone who had made little foam-like covers with cotton padding and baseball tube socks. Um, 
and then she just had cancer. So she had tumors removed at the same, you know, a little bit later on, but she's just an adorable little dog. And she goes to, um, all of these amputee, um, facilities. She trains therapy dogs. Uh, she does all this stuff and there's, uh, and we'll have the link on the website, but there's all these pictures of her with, with her four little amputated legs, just smiling and happy and, um, doing all this, you know, visiting all these people, going all over the place to make sure that, um, you know, people are happy visiting veterans in, in rehab or assisted living facilities. She goes to uh, young kids when they read, all that kind of stuff. So uh, I first want to say that dogs are great, as you know, but I also want to say how great to have an American yes. Hero Dog Award um, so we can celebrate the greatest of dogs who are definitely better than humans ever will be. So my greatness of the week is um, the American Humane's 2018 American Hero Dog. Uh, this year, Chi-Chi, who is just adorable. So check out the link. Um, check out ways you can support um, the, the organizations involved and and have a good time reading about um the, the stories uh, of these these cute puppies and funny note i believe one of the pictures is the dad walking the therapy dog and i think he's got the nirvana shirt on the one with the the smiley face with the tongue out and the x's through its eyes isn't that the old nirvana shirt so kudos yeah, yeah. to a guy walking his dog in the old school nirvana t-shirt side note <laughs> Well, thanks for. I'm not crying. You're crying. Amazing, (laughs) uplifting dog story. I am crying. Jeez, what a story. Um, Yeah. Well, I. You know, it's Sunday night, and it's it's a night to snuggle with your family and your pets, and um, just remind yourself all the great things you do have, and um, if you've got a dog, then you know, go give him an extra hug right now, unless they're not a huggy kind of dog, then I'll pat him on the head or give him something bacon flavored. That'd be good too. That's just adorable. Dogs are categorically great. So they are, that's, that's amazing. They are, they are, they are Paul McCartney times 50, (laughs) but only Paul McCartney would agree, but only Davy Jones times 20. Okay, <laughs> well, I've had enough of your, your Beatles uh, for one week, so we're going to end it here, but um, thanks everyone for joining us on uh, the Hall of Greatness. Uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to us talk about Thriller and why it's great and all of the other things that are great with us. We hope that things are great with you. If you'd like to contact us, please feel free to hit us up on social media. You can find us at the hall of greatness.com or on Twitter at the hall of greatness and uh, go on our website and uh, leave us a message in the comments about something you liked. And if you're listening to this on Apple podcasts or any other podcast service, 
please rate the podcast and leave us a comment. It does help other people find the podcast when they are looking for it. Thanks so much. And we hope everything is great with you. And until then, just remember, this could have been worse. Meanwhile, shut this off. Shut these all up. I'm warning you, turning off these machines would be extremely hazardous. I'll tell you what's hazardous. You're facing federal prosecution for at least a half a dozen environmental violations. Now, either you shut off these beams or we shut them up for you. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. You shut that thing down and we are not going to be held responsible for whatever happens. No, we won't be. Shut it off. Hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice. They never fail to be kind. Don't shut it off. I'm warning you. I, I've never seen anything like this before. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not interested in your opinion. Just shut it off. Could be worse. And to make a long story short, too late. It's worse. Cut it off.